0: You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Hey guys, before we jump into this episode, two things. First thing, rule number one, you're number one. (laughs) Sorry, uh, follow me on Instagram. Uh, I'm the mystic Mac on Instagram, and it's, it's the, the platform that I use the most. I share a ton of content. I talk a lot about consciousness and floating. I give lifestyle hacks and also some meditation training and stuff like that. So, um, if you haven't already go find me on Instagram. And secondly, I wanted to talk a little bit about how I approach supplements and vitamins and stuff like that. And because you're listening to this, you're a fan of probably these products that Natural Stacks creates, but also you're interested in in optimization. And the way that I think about vitamins and supplementation is we are our own guinea pigs. We can experiment with what our bodies respond to. What is it like? What is it like to run on? Can you run on fats and eat ketogenically? Um, How do you move? and what supplements what things can you put in your body that you can get the most return from and i think that's what what this thing is all about so if you do really well with high doses of krill oil do that if a product like siltep is really good for your mental stamina and you notice the difference stay on it if there are other things in your life that you want to try i encourage everyone to just tinker around and if you need to start from a clean slate Begin intermittent fasting. Start fasting on a regular basis and then introduce things in. And then you'll be able to see what sort of effect it has. And plus, fasting is a really effective way to lose weight and decrease inflammation, increase your immunity, and all this other good stuff. So, just a couple of things on my soapbox today. And uh, now we're going to jump into the episode. On today's episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast, we host this one is different, guys. This one is very different than what I normally do. We host Dr. Dean Radin is a PhD. He's the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And the, if you don't know much about the Institute of Noetic Sciences, this is all things psi. This is consciousness. This is, uh, this is all of the sort of non-physical sciences that uh, I am so fascinated by. And he's got a new book that I read that is phenomenal. It's called Real Magic. And... I've always been fascinated by magic and I'm also interested in how magic can affect performance. How can we use magical practices to get the most out of ourselves? How can we be our absolute best with the use of a few uh, magical tools, magical practices? But more importantly, how does science look at it? What What are the scientific justifications and explanations for how science works? Dr. Raiden is a is a brilliant person. He's written a ton of books. I mean, over twenty, um, ranging in topics. Um, but I really enjoyed this conversation because it gets into how we can all perform at a higher level and what magic is and how we can actually uh, do some magic ourselves. Please enjoy. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. And of course, we are joined by Dr. Dean Radin, who is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and author of the new book, Real Magic. Dean, thanks for joining us today.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: So I start every podcast the same way, which is this question of what's in your body today? What have you consumed today? We're both it's 1.30 on Pacific Standard Time. What have you, what have you eaten? What have you drank? What's in your body?
1: Today I had uh, basmati rice with uh, lentil dal and a piece of naan bread. Nice. And, and, a, and a tiny bit of salad. That's all I had. That's it. And no coffee. No. No. No, I, I don't do well with coffee. No. Uh, so I just had water. Okay.
0: Nice. So. This is gonna be a you're you're a you're a fairly unique guest for this podcast. You know, most of um most of the guests that we have are about performance in its most traditional sense, but because I'm running the show, I get to pick whoever I want and I I was really excited to have this conversation because um the book is fascinating and in in really it's about science. It's not really about magic. And That's and, right. And I would really love for you to sort of give us a, a short synopsis of what the book is about. And then we can sort of launch from there. Tell us about real magic.
1: So what the book is about is in a sense, the astonishment from a scientific perspective, that magic is real, right? Magic is not supposed to be real. It's fine in entertainment. It's okay. in fiction, uh, it's fine on the stage when it's an illusion, it's not fine or at least it's uh, very bizarre and somewhat frightening and exciting at the same time to imagine that some aspects of magic are actually real. And so to to justify this idea that magic is in fact real, I have to define what what it is. I have to define what the nature of the evidence is, something about the history of what we're talking about, and so on. So the book is covering all of these topics in order to justify what amounts to a single statement, magic is real.
0: (laughs) And how does how does magic, or or the perception of magic, influence, or how can it influence um, people's performance?
1: Well, the moment you get past the notion that magic is real, you also then begin to realize that it is always operating all the time. It, it's not the, as portrayed in fiction, where you need a special magic wand or a special uh, chant or something like that in order to make it happen. It's not. Coming out of nothing, it's always there. It's simply it, it's part of the uh, fabric of reality, and the part of the subtitle of the book is uh, the, uh, the the secret power of the universe. Well, the secret the secret power of the universe is consciousness. So consciousness is everywhere all the time, and because consciousness is, is not simply the fact of awareness, but from the esoteric traditions, it it is the basis for reality itself. A philosopher might use the term idealism, but ultimately what we're talking about is the notion that consciousness is a fundamental aspect of of reality itself. We have consciousness, we, we can experience consciousness, and from consciousness emerges the physical world, all aspects of the physical world as we know it, everything from physics to biology to chemistry and everything above that. So it it is operating in our everyday lives, whether we know it or not, primarily shaped by our attention and our intention. And then there's a a couple of other things that modulate it, like belief and imagination and so on. But the primary thing is where your attention is and what your intentions are, are in some way shaping reality itself. So this is... What the what the law of attraction is about, and it's it's what you find again and again in the in what amounts to a shibboleth of you create your own reality. But it turns out it's not just a saying. That in, in many ways, both from a standard scientific perspective and from a, a more expansive scientific approach, which which I'm claiming is part of magic, that we could, we we are creating our reality psychologically and physically all the time. Most of it is unconscious, but some of it is also under conscious control as well.
0: You can kind of see examples of this in how people see themselves in their situation and how they think of their life, right? You know, for some people who have been faced with massive obstacles in their life, um, you know, victims of abuse and just had a real tough life, their attitude may be fairly optimistic and chipper uh, versus someone who's had everything handed to them, but they're miserable right and right, and so right. it's 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 not about resources or or it's not about what's happened in your life it's about how you choose to see the world and how you operate and and navigate through this world is that is that is that touching on uh
1: magical practices well, I would say that that is the psychological side of it your your attitude is something under your control and it shapes your perception of things that happen to you. But the the magic that becomes more interesting for me, even though the psychological side is very important for people, for for me, coming at this from a scientific perspective, it's it's actually more interesting that your intentions and that tension can literally change the fabric of reality itself. So, and we're biased by our stories about magic and what we see in Harry Potter and movies and so on. It looks like we, we we should all have in any time we talk about magic having the powers of Merlin or something like that where we can just at a at a, a flick of the wrist cause diamonds to appear in front of you something like that that is fiction and fiction is an a, a major embellishment of of what we're talking about but a flick of the wrist with a an intention and attention underneath it especially if it's extremely clear what it is that you're, you want will start things in motion to actually get you that. Now, you're not likely to end up with a basket full of diamonds out of nowhere, <laughs> but you might. And more importantly, you're, you're more likely, if you begin to think of that in a positive way, you'll start moving in a direction. Almost the moment that that thought comes to mind, start moving into a direction where the likelihood of that begins to manifest. Yes. Now, in, initially, it might be you find a penny, on the ground. <laughs> well, that, that's a step and that's kind of what you'd expect, uh, but it's, you have to start somewhere. And so the, the, I think the reason why we don't generally see Merlin-level magic is because anytime something of that magnitude happens, uh, we're, we're, it's not exactly that the universe is in a zero-sum game. You could have a basket full of diamonds appear and it won't really matter very much for the rest of the, of the universe, but there's a lot of inertia in the universe. And there's an enormous amount of inertia among people's expectations on earth. So if if you were aware of somebody who was dreaming about a basket of diamonds and sure enough, they then show you here's the basket of diamonds I got overnight, that's now going to interact with your intentions and attentions and perhaps millions or billions of other peoples. So we're dealing here with a a very complicated interacting system uh, where all of our attentions and intentions are, essentially, in creating the world that we live in. Some in some aspects, literally, physically, the way that we live in, and other aspects, psychologically, and, and it, it's mixed together in a complex way. So, that that's th- this is now again saying from a, looking at these kinds of phenomena from a scientific perspective, there's a few things that that we need to explain. One of which is. Well, how come it's not stronger than it is? Because it's not very strong, except for very talented people, and there are very few of them. Another is, how can this be true, given the rest of what we know about science? And so I spend a a chapter in the book talking about the science of this and what we need to do to change, just slightly change our assumptions about reality in order to make everything that we currently know about science still okay (laughs) <laughs> still works just as well we don't have to throw away any textbooks but it also then begins to accommodate this notion that we are way more powerful in terms of shaping our reality than than our textbooks have said
0: yeah that's a that's a it's an interesting point to make how can we rectify what we know about the measurable universe with the tools that we've created to make those measurements um right. and factor in consciousness <laughs> And factor yeah. in mind before matter as a, as a construction of, of the universe itself. Um, and, and when you think about consciousness and the effect that it has, um, some people are, are more adept than others at creating their reality. And, and I think that's kind of where the rubber meets the road, especially for this audience, is what, how, what sort of effect does it have if I create a vision board? like what will that do well that's that's the re- that's the reticular activation system right that's the law of attraction right, right? yeah and in, yep. in in my in my world as a coach um there's something very very powerful about stating your intention about activating that part of your brain that says okay now that I know where I'm going and I know what I want and I know what my intention is I'm now open to receive clues and to uh, to to march down the path of manifesting exactly what i've what i've pinpointed and mm-hmm. I'm an, i am i'm an n of one and my clients are cases too but i i wish i could show my vision board that i did two mm-hmm. years ago <laughs> and this speci- this the specificity of the things that have come true and i need to do it again because it's it's happening too quickly i need to i need to update it but I think when you when you think about the law of attraction, when you think about consciousness and the and the role that that plays in actual manifestation, um, that's a tough thing to measure, right? Well,
1: yes and no. So the it, it's true that uh, you want we want to get a sense that this is really real. It's not just a psychological trick that we're playing. And so the the way that we know whether these things can exist or not is to go into the laboratory. So we we, we look at the effect of Attention and intention on physical systems in the laboratory under controlled conditions. So th- this then is where the this, the psychic part comes in. It's the this is what parapsychology as a discipline has been studying for about 150 years, and so there's literally hundreds of published experiments looking at the 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 role of intention, attention, and looking at Uh, What are the limitations on perception through space and time? Uh, The role of uh, intention on bodily health, both yours and others at a distance, and many other phenomena like this. So the reason why I'm able to say with some confidence that magic is real is because I need to define what I mean by magic. And when I do that, you'll see it's immediately equivalent to what we've been studying in the laboratory. Hmm. We have high confidence from what we see in the lab that this stuff is real. So what is magic? Magic consists of three practices. One is divination. So it's, it's tarot cards, it's mirror gazing, it's anything that is used as a technique to perceive through space and time. In the laboratory, we call it precognition and clairvoyance or remote viewing. And many, many experiments have been published, and I talk about some of them in my book, and in my my previous books, I talk about it in great detail to to show that we we know that these things are real. They show up in the lab. The second category is force of will. That's where the law of attraction fits. It has completely do to do with your intention uh, manipulating the world, manifesting the world in in the direction of your your will. And the third category of magical practice is theurgy, which involves uh, communicating with spirits, or at least with non-physical intelligences, which uh, there's a huge range of things that that might be. So in in parapsychology, we study that in terms of near-death experience and mediumship and channeling and a few other things. So by saying that we can study something in a controlled manner in the laboratory, the what we generally see in the laboratory is pretty weak. These are not, we're, you know, we're not levitating in the lab. We're seeing small effects that take statistics and lots of people and lots of repeated trials. But the advantage that you get when you do this, even though you're not seeing somebody levitate, is that you can gain very high confidence that the effects that you're looking at are real. So in, in the scientific sense, it does not matter how big something is. All that matters is your confidence that the thing that you're measuring is a real thing. So, a lot of I, 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 I sympathize with people who are not scientists. They don't like statistics. They don't get into the details of these things. And so they might be saying, well, if the effect is like if chance is 50% and you're talking about a 52% effect, who cares? Well, we care a lot because we know that the 2% really is 2%. Yeah. It's not accidentally chance. It's, it's from a statistical point of view, it is absolutely not chance. Yeah. It's small, it's small, but it's a real thing. It's just like in, a physis- in physics, you'd say, well the, well, the charge on the electron is practically so small, though, who cares? Well, you get enough of them together in the right way and suddenly you have a power grid. So it doesn't matter about the size. What matters is that the thing exists. So we know that divination exists. We know that force of will exists. And we know the theurgy, they all exist. They're They're like, they're tiny little bits compared to what we see in fiction. But they're real. Right. And the moment that you accept that they're real, the next stage is to say, well, wh- how big can it get? Like, is it, how does it make a difference in my life? Well, in any individual's life, we're, we're dealing with the same kind of talent that you'd find in sports or in music. Some people are way off on the right side of the scale. And they're the ones who end up in Carnegie Hall and in the Olympics. The vast majority of us are not going to get there. But the vast majority of us can learn more than we currently know. And so th- that's where your job comes in. You need to take somebody from wherever they happen to be. Maybe they have talent. Maybe they don't. And at least let them know that wherever they're starting from, they could move to the right of where they are in terms of this curve. The right is high talent. Right. You can move people. There. They will eventually reach a plateau where where they can't move anymore because they don't have the talent to do that. But almost anybody can move to the right, and that that makes everybody's life better
0: yeah and, and and it comes with it comes with a belief that you can actually move to the right because in, in, yes. in like you said in your book um, you know in the experiments and I, and I want you to get into those a little bit because I think those are going to be really interesting for people you know it, for those that don't believe in magic, it doesn't work as well for those that do <laughs> there's there's some statistical significance. Tell us, tell us about, um, tell us, just to, to touch into these studies. Tell us about the chocolate study, and, and please tell us about the tea, uh, the tea experiment as well.
1: Okay, so both of these were uh, experiments looking at uh, folklore that's been around forever, uh, where we we pray over and we bless food and drink. So in a religious, actually most religious contexts. Somebody is blessing wine, somebody is blessing a wafer, somebody, there, there's always some something happening over food and drink. So some of the prayers that are involved or the blessings are simply a matter of gratitude. It's not asking really for anything, it's gratitude for the ability to have the food. But many times also it is intentional. Like I hope when I eat this chicken, I'm not going to end up with salmonella. That you know, this I, I want this to be healthy for me. So the question then is, well, why is this so popular? Even in bars, you see people toasting each other all the time with with spirits, alcohol spirits. Sp-
0: with spirits. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So, well, why did they do that? Well, so we were asking the question in the experiment to see whether the bl- act of blessing did something. So to do this under control conditions, first we chose chocolate, because whenever you do a clinical trial, it's difficult to recruit people for an experiment. And as soon as we, we let people know that we wanted to do an experiment involving eating chocolate, then we had to beat people off with sticks <laughs> to keep them away. It was very easy to recruit people. And the, the experiment was simple. We, we asked a Mongolian shaman and a, a couple of Buddhist monks that we know who were all very experienced in terms of magical process to bless a batch of uh, gourmet chocolate. And then we had a, an identical batch, which was not blessed. So the the blessing was that anybody who ate that chocolate would have an elevation in their mood. And mood is not that difficult to measure. There are standardized ways of measuring mood. So we recruited a bunch of people from the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I am. Some of them got the, uh, the blessed chocolate. Some got the not blessed chocolate under double blind conditions. So they didn't know which chocolate they got. They knew that that they might get the blessed chocolate, but they didn't know. And the person who gave it to them didn't know either. So that's the double blinding. So that's to make sure that their expectations were held constant so they couldn't be biased in one way or the other. And then uh, each day over one week in the evening, they would record their mood over the day. The Three middle days of the week, they would eat the chocolate. And the hypothesis was that people getting the blessed chocolate would in fact report an elevated mood. As compared to people getting the not blessed chocolate, and that is what we found. So, the next stage was using tea. We used e- oolong tea, uh, in, in and was, this was done in Taiwan. We used tea rather than chocolate in Taiwan because I guess they don't have much. They don't not interested in chocolate so much in China. Uh, I don't. I can hardly imagine why, but that's simply a cultural thing. <laughs> but they do drink tea a lot. That's the favorite beverage. So oolong tea is like chocolate in that it it has uh, mood elevation characteristics in the substance itself. So again, we use mood as a measure to see if we can push it even more through a blessing. So in that case, three Buddhist monks gave the blessing. They also did, a, did an anti-blessing to the control tea. So we started out with one big bi- one big pot of oolong tea, but then separated it into two pieces. So one batch of the tea was going to be blessed and the other was not blessed. But because all of the tea was held in the same location, we asked the monks to specifically bless the blessed tea and to anti-bless the other tea so it would be sure to be a control. So basically, there was like a a binding spell on it. This is not blessed. (laughs) So then again, under double-blind conditions, in this case, we had 100 people getting the blessed tea, 100 people getting the not-blessed tea, same experimental design. Three middle days of the week, they would drink the tea. And sure enough, at the end of the experiment, Under the placebo control, the placebo control is that everybody thought they were getting blessed tea. Some of them did, and some of them did not. In that case, the ones who got the blessed tea actually reported significantly better mood. So it worked. The experiment worked. There's another condition where nobody thinks that they're getting blessed tea. This is called the nocebo condition. It's the opposite of the placebo. So nobody in this condition thought they were getting the blessed tea. Some of them did, and some did not. And there you see no difference in mood. So but what, what that tells us is that your belief about whether you're getting the magical thing determines completely whether or not the magical thing works. Right. And so we added that into this experiment because it is a long part of magical lore that for a spell or, or practice to work, you have to believe in it. And it's one of the reasons why sorcery in general is done in strict secrecy. Because the moment you tell somebody else about it, all you need is a raised eyebrow questioning what you're doing, and that can destroy your belief. Right. So spells are done in secret uh, or only under extreme high levels of trust with other people because you have to believe that the thing is going to work. My interpretation of that is that the reason is that we unconsciously can open or close our, our, our ability to accept the, the spell put it in, a, in magical terms. Our intention and attention is strongly modulated by, by this filter of openness. So you can close it or you can open this. This is, among other things, one of the reasons why I think that people who are very strongly skeptical about these ideas or about the law of attraction notions, they're skeptical, but they're their experience then supports their skepticism right. because they, never, they don't see anything happening. So of course, from their perspective, anybody who believes in this stuff is nutty, but they're, they're not seeing then that their, their belief has closed down the possibility of ever seeing it. So, and of course, the, 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 the contrast is true as well. People who strongly believe it and have clear expectations, well, they do experience it. And from our laboratory experiments, we see that this is not simply a matter of self-delusion we see under control conditions that it actually does work.
0: Yeah. What, what are the implications of, of your research? Um, the, this book, you know, your research at, at, uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, what, what does this mean? This, this concept of magic being a real thing and, and maybe there's, maybe there's different ways to brand it, you know, so that it can be more, more digestible for people. Um, but, what are the implications of scientific rigor and research and study going forward when you factor in consciousness? Because to me, we're sort of advancing with this line of thinking with, uh, let's just say that we can rally enough people that get on board with this and uh, and choose intention and optimism and belief in in our own uh, ability to influence positive outcomes, um, what does that do to our basic understanding of the universe and materialism and, and sort of the, the governing belief system that we all, I think, we're in now, which is sort of a, a reductionist, materialist view of the world? Like, what does this, how is this going to influence that?
1: Well, one big implication is that the the materialist viewpoint Essentially, says that we live in a nihilistic universe. Doesn't matter. We live in a, well, yeah, everything is pointless. Right. Like it's all random. It doesn't matter. There, 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 there actually is no purpose to anything. Right. It's questionable as to whether or not you have an an internal experience. You know, the, maybe you have consciousness, maybe you don't. Ultimately, what doesn't matter. Right. So this this uh, attitude that is developed, this nihilistic attitude, I see that it affects college students who are going through a scientific curriculum. They come out of it actually rather depressed yeah. and in many cases they begin to wonder, like, well, why, why should I do that? Why should I do any kind of science? Why, in fact, why should I do anything if it's all pointless? So those who come from a, a strong religious background can find some comfort within the religious concepts. But as orthodox religion is slowly dropping away and people go, become more and more secular, it's kind of scary it puts people in a scary position that maybe nothing matters and oh by the way the way that the wheels of civilization are turning is in the direction of actually nothing matters right right so so you just use up the planet who cares it's not it doesn't all, all that really matters is to to die with the most toys that's yeah. the way that that, oh, that, boy. that becomes the ethic so well that's that's not very life-affirming uh even if materialism was 100 percent true you still don't want to teach people that, right? right. We, we can say that virtue is its own reward and some people will get that, but a lot of people don't get that. So they, they become consumers and we, all we do is consume. That's what we're identified. We're not even citizens anymore. We're consumers. So this is not to say that I'm, I, I want to radically change everything about society. What I'm saying is that there's an underlying philosophical assumption about the way that, that our civilization works, and the direction that it points is one of nihilism. That's simply the way it is. So the, uh, uh, historians sometimes call it that, that we're in a a mode of civilization which has been disenchanted, right? We go from a, a supernatural origins up through the enlightenment where science started to become big. And over the course of a century, the major ethic from, of, of people was that uh, the old ideas that were considered religious and supernatural were were ancient ideas and no longer necessary and that disenchanted everything that's where the pointlessness comes from so it be i think it behooves us especially the way that the, the world is spinning now we really need to get a better sense of what is the nature of reality and what is our role in it yeah so we then can say well if consciousness is as important as we think it is especially if it turns out to be fundamental in some important way well then it has huge implications for health and healing because it's no longer that it's simply a placebo effect which somehow works by psychoneuroimmunology blah 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 now it's almost as though your your awareness of yourself is creating yourself it is i mean it's like physically you're emerging out of that in some way so that's that's one implication so it could change not not the the, the Vector of the way that, that medicine is working, but it could add something to it which could possibly make it much more effective and actually, you're beginning to see that at the leading edge of integrative medicine anyway, seeing a lot more openness to this notion, so that's a good sign other things that that uh, where it makes an impact and a pragmatic impact is virtually every other scientific discipline the The, the thing about making consciousness fundamental is that it's important to realize that it doesn't mean that our physics books are wrong. It simply means that the physics books are not complete, which every physicist knows, right? They get changed every 10 years anyway, or every two years almost. And this is true for every discipline. It's not that they're wrong, they're just incomplete. So they're incomplete, according to this, in a direction where consciousness becomes a part of the study itself. So just to give one example, uh, a couple of years ago, when the people at CERN uh, discovered the Higgs boson, There were a lot of people at the time who were working at CERN who were saying, this was way too easy. Yes, it took trillions of trials and it took billions of dollars to get the machine to work the way that they wanted to. But the results of it was so close to the mathematical prediction that it made a number of people very suspicious about it. So what is the effect of thousands of physicists whose jobs depend on finding something through an experiment involving trillions upon trillions of data points and huge amounts of analysis, did they create the outcome <laughs> um, so there there 's this long thread of, of thought within mathematics and physics on what 's called the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the physical sciences <laughs> it 's unreasonable because we from a to take from a materialistic point of view, you have three pounds of tissue sitting inside your skull somehow, the three pounds of tissue came up with mathematical formulas, which are basically just symbols, which describe the workings of the physical world as best as we can tell to 12 decimal places. So that's unreasonable. How, how is that even possible <laughs> that we can describe what's going on at, at 45 parsecs beyond Pluto in such high levels of confidence? Well, one possibility is that part of us is creating it. Right, we we' the, the three pounds of tissue is not the thing itself. Yeah. Our consciousness is associated with it, and it happens to be a hunk of matter which is particularly well tuned to for consciousness to manifest in a localized way. But that's not where the consciousness is. It's 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 simply it's like everywhere for one thing, and we get the impression because we're embodied that it's some, we're making it somehow. But this other way of thinking of it, saying no, the consciousness were there first, and when we come up with ideas, especially mathematical predictions which are extremely precise, we have a very clear affirmation. We're going to spend tens of billions of dollars, and we're going to put thousands of people who work for many years, all with the same very clear intention, and they find it. <laughs> so it sounds like you know, a,
0: yeah, it sounds like magic and sigil work.
1: Yes, that's exactly what it sounds like when when you put on this slightly different hat. So it says the physics is still good, mathematics are good, except it's pulling. It's like looking underneath the rug on which these things are sitting and saying, well, why is it so good? Why is it considered unreasonably effective because of a law of attraction, essentially? Wow, I never thought of it like that.
0: Yeah, that 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 does kind of put it into perspective too. You know how 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 many how many people. Devoted their lives to, to this outcome. How many really smart, really powerful people devoted their lives to this outcome and hope oh, we did it?
1: <laughs> yeah. It's and it. Then, we, then they got the Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so part of it is very clear intention, long practice, long attention, all of the things that you would do as a magician to make something come about. So now I can take off the, the magic hat and put on a physicist's hat. And you would say, that is insane. That's like an insane thing to talk about. It's impossible. Uh, to which I would say, well, there have been many experiments using physical targets in the laboratory, typically random number generators, but lots and lots of other things from bacteria to human behavior and beyond, which does show to a stu- 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 statistically significant degree that even a single person in a laboratory intending that one of those targets behave in a different way, that's what happens. Doesn't happen every time. It's pretty weak when it happens, but it does happen. So scale that up into huge amounts of intention and intention and people and time and whatever. And then it's not suddenly so strange that you could have what amounts to a gigantic statistics experiment, which is CERN, particle physics, it's, and not only that, the result that got CERN the Nobel Prize was called a five-sigma result. It's five, five standard deviations away from a chance or a null result. Five-sigma in the physics world is – that it's so, it's, it looks really, really good, like this is a real good thing, like it's a real thing. And so it got the Nobel Prize because there was prior to that a prediction about what it should look like. So five-sigma is not that big. I mean, it's it's pretty solid, but there are plenty of experiments within parapsychology who have five sigma results. They're not getting Nobel prizes for a very simple reason: we don't have mathematical formulas that would predict it. Right. All we have are are thousands of years of people's experiences, which in in composite say something's going on. We can show it in the laboratory, but we still don't have a good explanation for it yet. Hmm. At least not in mathematical terms.
0: Fascinating. Oh man, I love this stuff. I love it. I want to take it I want to take it toward toward performance a little bit because I think that our listeners might be interested in 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 things that they might be able to do to influence them their lives, right? And and you lay out some very practical um, applications of, of magical practice like sigil work. And I think, uh, it's safe to say that most of the folks that are listening don't know what a sigil is. Um, they probably know what a vision board is. Maybe they've never done one, but sigil work is, um, is something that, that I do, um, and, um, works for me. But I, I think that it would be interesting to touch on, let's just say, um, uh, you're, um, you're an ultra marathoner and, uh, you want to do, you want to have your best race ever, you know, what are some things that they, that, that they could do to whether, whether you believe in it a little bit now, um, or, or a lot right now, what are some things that people can do that can actually practice in a, in, in a magical way, uh, to, to have the desired outcome?
1: Well, first of all, thinking of it as a magical practice for some people it won't work because right. they won't be able to get they won't be able to get Harry Potter out of their heads. You're right. And and so a little piece of their mind is thinking this is stupid. And if you're doing something with that in your mind, just don't even bother. So think of this more as a way of focusing your intention and attention. Because that's really what's going on. All of these practices are ways of focusing intention. And in particular becoming crystal clear on what you want the outcome to be. So you could have very highly focused attention, but you may not know exactly what it is that you want. And so that's, you, you, that's not going to go anywhere. Right. You have to have a very clear uh, notion of what you want and even imagine then that it is already finished. You, it's already done. You're, you're just playing out. You're just following the rules and it will happen all by itself. You need to start to think in motion though. So the, the first of the magical, two magical practices I talk about in the book is first is writing magic. So it's a little bit easier than sigils. Writing magic is exactly what it sounds like. You write down what you want. And it could be anything, literally anything that you could write down to say what it is that you want uh, and in in as clear a fashion as you can possibly get. So I like this idea. I saw um, there's a magician who's also a a linguist and uses semiotics. all of magical spells are semiotics basically it's it's about the notion of using symbols and signs so writing is a symbolic system uh his way of of describing it though i liked it It said that you get a, a special piece of paper or you have a special book or something that you only use for these kinds of writing spells you get your favorite pen or maybe you have a special pen and now you write down on the surface of the paper what it is that you want and, as clearly as you can, but you imagine that while you're writing that the ink coming out of the pen is like coming out of your mind. It's what your intention actually is, and the paper is the surface of the rest of the universe, so you're 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 putting out onto the universe the surface of the universe your intention through the act of writing, and you're getting it out of your head, you're putting it out somewhere. So you write it down, and then you either – you take the paper, you roll it up, you put it away. Some people burn it. There's lots of different things people do with it. The idea of it, though, is that once you have very clearly expressed what you want, you need to drop it out of your conscious awareness Hmm. because these things don't happen in your conscious awareness. They happen at very deep levels of awareness. So you put a lot of attention on writing whatever it is, and then you set it aside. Some people would say you need to look at it every day and review it so it remains, you know, like just below the level of of your awareness. Uh, You look at it just before you go to sleep, those kinds of things. So you're writing what amounts to a spell. And so here's where the the dual meaning of spell comes in. (laughs) It's a magical spell, which means it's a magical affirmation of the way that you want the world to work. You're also literally spelling the words. You're using symbols to create larger symbols, which represent the thing that you want. So, C-A-T are three little symbols when you put together as a representation of a cat. So, spelled has those two meanings. It is the symbology of it and the thing itself. From a magical perspective, everything is a symbol. Even objects in the real world are symbols. It's all symbol. It's all symbology. That's why intention works from a magical perspective, because you're mind you can think of as a symbol manipulator. You manipulate the symbols. The world has to change because that's what it's made out of. That's the, that's the idea. So th- the only difference between a, ma- a writing magic and a sigil is that when you, you, you take a phrase of something that you want, you take the first letter of each one of the words, you then take those letters and you squash them together into a shape or a symbol. And it, it could be an abstract thing. You will know what it means because you made it, but maybe nobody else might know what it means. So in some respects, a logo, like an abstract logo, is a sigil. Right. It's, it's, It's a symbol for the thing, whatever it happens to be. The difference now is that the act of drawing has two meanings. You draw the sigil, and you are drawing it towards you. So the, so both spells and drawing – and there's a lot of other words like this where if you look at it from a semiotics perspective, the dual meaning is not a coincidence. You're, right. you, you draw the, si- the sigil. The sigil or the symbol is now drawing – you are drawing that thing towards yourself. And just like in writing magic, once you made the little sig- sigil, you don't want to dwell on it too much because it will keep you, keep it too high on top of your head. You want to look at it every so often, set it aside, maybe put it in your wallet so it come, you see it every so often. Uh, and then depending on the nature of what it is that you want, if you're asking for a bowl of diamonds and you're not involved in the diamond trade, it could happen. <laughs> it might take a long time to, for everything to kind of come together so that it happens. But if you do something simpler, like I find a penny or a nickel on the ground tomorrow, that is much more likely to happen. Yeah. And I know that it, it does happen. Essentially, you're what you're doing is, is creating a synchronicity. Right. You're creating a meaningful coincidence in time. By the same token, every time we do an experiment in a laboratory, even under controlled conditions, that is a synchronicity. It's a controlled synchronicity. Right. So that's why I have, have some confidence that uh, sigils, writing magic, all of those spells are ways of focusing – your intention in a clear way and you start something in motion. And then with a little bit of luck, whatever that is, right. is probably just clear, more clear intention. The thing is <laughs> sure enough, it happens.
0: So in this case, like you like you mentioned, it's, it's, it's about, um, writing it in present tense, right? Like it's, or, or, right. or, or like it's already happened. So like I, I finish, uh, I finish first in the ultra marathon, I beat my personal best by six minutes and 42 seconds and I feel amazing. Is that, is that sufficient?
1: Yes. Yeah. In the present tense, as though it has already been accomplished. And the, 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 and the reason is, and I do describe an experiment we did on this general idea in the book. The reason is that you, you're not trying to push toward the future. It's not like you're trying to manipulate something now into the future. It's much easier, both from a magical perspective and we think also just from a physical perspective, that you want to create the thing in the future already. It's like you're placing something in the future. And then it's actually pre- pretty easy because once it's there in the future, you don't have to do anything different. You're going you're gonna to end up getting pulled toward that thing that's in the future. That's why the, the length of time it takes to get there is an issue, right. depending depending on what it is that you want. So the, ball, the bowl of diamonds is possible, but maybe it'll take a lifetime to get there because like given where you are now, what is necessary for that thing to take place. But one thing that is almost sure is that the likelihood of bumping into a bowl of diamonds is extremely low, it becomes a little bit better If you all, if you put a lot of attention on it, maybe a lot better.
0: Well, and and the skeptics would say, you know, they would say, well, it's not like you can, you know, again, like, you know, uh, you, you read the secret, you saw it on Oprah, you, you know, you're not buying it for a second. You know, uh, it's going to, it's going to cause you to be lazy, you know, for the skeptics that are saying, oh, it's not like you can write the, write this, this, this writing magic out, this practice, and then eat potato chips and never run, and still expect like there's still there's still an element of your behavior that goes to that thing. you know what would you say to people that that call b s on on that well they're right yeah, that it, it's right.
1: it is it's not that simple right the The concept is simple, and we know from the lab that it that it generally it works, but for most people, most of the time it's a very small effect, which is why don't ask for bowls of diamonds as for something that you you think is plausible for what you can achieve. And then even if it's only a psychological effect, where you're putting a lot of attention on getting a certain kind of outcome, that will help you do it just from purely a psychological mundane reason. I think it's more than that because we were able to do experiments that show that it actually does more than that. It's not just chance stuff happening, it's it's something real that is happening. Occasionally, you even in a lab condition, we'll see something that is really astonishing. Like, like it is not just statistically significant; it's blow your socks off, that kind of effect. It's very rare to see that. And as I describe in the book, there, there, I think good reasons for why that is rare. We, we would probably destroy ourselves collectively if magic was as easy as we see in the movies. Right. Because every whim every being cut off in traffic for a moment, your whim is you wish that person would disappear. Well, there would be not much traffic left after a while because we would all be making each other disappear. Right. So there's a lot of reality inertia underneath this. Uh, in addition, there's also a lot of self-defeating behavior. And th- this is something which is, most, I think, a very strong part of this where you may, wa- you may write something that you want, but in a deeper way, you'd actually don't. Hmm. And we we are saturated and permeated with self-defeating behavior all the time. And the way to see that is how many people are smoking, how many people are drinking, how many people are doing things which they know at some level is not good for them, they do it anyway. And we're not talking about things like physical addiction. We're talking about stuff that people are deciding day by day, which is not good for them in any way. And so they're defeating themselves. So this, now we're talking about deep psychology, but that's where the, that's where the juice is coming from. It's not, not surface level, I really, I want this thing. It has to come from a deeper place. And that's, that's why I talk a lot about gnosis in the book and, and about deep mental states and why we see these phenomena more frequently and stronger in people who do practice meditation.
0: Yeah, right. Well, and that's and that's sort of the easiest math you can do, right? If you if you want to be balanced and you want to be able to give yourself the best chance to perform the best at work, in your life, with your family, in whatever sort of you know recreation that you do, meditation is going to help you because it will allow you to be more balanced and will allow you to um, see things as they are, or maybe even see things better than they are, or maybe have some sort of magical influence. On things. And, and, uh, yeah, that's sort of like, you know, step one, uh, stop watching Netflix, you know, like for two minutes, just turn it off, you know, not, um, taking control of your own consciousness for your own life and your own intention. I mean, that's, that's, that's huge. And that's a tall ask for a lot of people who, in which we are so distracted and so pulled away from, um, from real, real study, real intention, real, um, sort of purpose in, in our in, in each of our lives um, but I digress um, do you know much about flow states dr. Raiden
1: well I, I know what it is yeah, yeah.
0: one thing that I've the, the flow state um, um, you know such books as you know the Rise Stealing Fire The Rise of Superman Stephen Kotler and Jamie wheel um, talk a lot about uh, flow states and how you can induce flow states through a couple of different variables, you know, uh, inversion, you know, bodily inversion helps flow states, Um, you know, um, psychotropic, small psychotropic uh, substances, you know, a little bit of cannabis and a run can put you into a flow state, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But they really do break it down into sort of a chemical, uh, a chemical explanation to to a large extent. Um, Mm -hmm. I've always thought that the, that it's larger than that. I've always thought that when you're, you know, like yourself giving a presentation or, um, or writing a book or you know again writing running a marathon or, or whatever the thing is and however it is that you perform in your life that it that, that that even beyond the sort of chemical reaction that's happening in your brain where you're doing your best you're performing at your in your as part of your highest self that there's something else that there's mm-hmm. that, that there's a there's a non-physical uh, occurrence that happens in which you are integrating with that thing that you're doing there's novelty and your're um, you're becoming the best version of yourself through this sort of metaf- metamorphosis um, in your in your life path. Do you have any thoughts? I, I know that that was that was not a question. That was me just rambling. But do you kind of see where I'm going with that at all? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we we become very used to thinking of you are your brain. You are your brain. Maybe you're your body as well, or maybe there's no difference. Uh, and it's a, it's an easy and convenient way of talking to people who have been taught, usually since they began to go to school, that ultimately you're a meat machine. And so if you're a machine made, a, made out of meat, we can talk about the biochemistry and electrical things and so on. It's It's easy for us to think of bodies and brains and even our cognition and our performance in those terms. And some of that is completely real. It's not that that's an illusion. These are real stuff. You really do have different chemicals going in your brain and so on when you're in these, these unusual states or the states that you want to create. From a magical perspective, though, that's not all that's going on, as you're saying. that you, it's, it's that plus something else. Well, the plus something else has to do with the consciousness element. And so especially as this is true if you imagine that consciousness is fundamental because now we're talking about as a flow state that the the biochemistry may be a reflection of something that's actually deeper that's going on. Right. If you get into a state of gnosis, you get into a state of of what a mystic would call oneness or a yogi would call samadhi, you're operating at a level which is much closer to the the underlying substance of reality itself. And so maybe a flow state sometimes is described as blissful, well, it's not a coincidence that meditators will talk about they can recognize when they get into a state of samadhi because it's blissful. And they start seeing light. And they they do all of the things that a yogi is describing, typically not within, within movement. They're not moving as a result, although they can be. That is a flow state. And now it's purely consciousness. It's a different level of awareness. So the flow state that a, an athlete might strive to get into, yes, some of it is body-related, but you could almost, I almost think of it then as the using the body as a moving meditation. Yes. It's a way to get everything into alignment in such, just such a way that it's not the mind per se. It's your consciousness that is allowed now to go to a level of depth where it can sense what is actually happening.
0: Yeah, just sort of the chicken or the egg thing which came first, right?
1: yeah in this case we're saying consciousness is came first
0: yeah right i i just picture i picture like sufis you know spinning the whirling dervish that spins to get into a state that brings them to this this that elevates their their levels and you know connects them to the god within them right in sufism right you know this sort of like um and this inner this inner god self that you can connect with by spinning you know like um can you do that by catching a wave i think so can you
1: yeah, know, sure, right. Can you do that? You by... could do it you could do it playing golf right yes, right any any intentional movement act is a kind of a meditation. Uh, golf is probably one of the uh, a good example of this because it's it's not like running, you're not spending a huge amount of energy. You're spending a huge amount of attention on what you're doing, and it involves movement, and then the game is completely psychological. From that point or you go beyond that it's like it's p- completely a consciousness game really right the psychological games that players play off against each other to try to m- make the opponent not quite as good as they would ordinarily be that's a psychological game but the from the inside of the person who's playing the, at the top of their form it's all about consciousness yeah and you even hear stories like in michael murphy's book uh golf in the kingdom right i'm familiar about, but yeah so these these stories are basically that you you hit the you you have a, a long putt and you hit the ball and it doesn't seem to be going in the right direction, but if you're in alignment with exactly what the goal is, the ball will turn and the ball will simply go right into the cup you know you and you it, it's not like you made it happen it just it happens because that's what has to happen yeah. like you you visualize that this has to occur and the universe will obey.
0: <laughs> yes. What have we left out in this conversation that that you think is worth noting? You know, for for people, uh, for people of the of, of the, for our listeners that that I've touched on a little bit. Like, what what do people? What's a what's a key point that people that everybody should know about about real magic?
1: You should go to realmagicbook.com dot com. Yes. Uh, you 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 could buy an ebook or a paperback, but. The audiobook, I think, has has been received best. It's partially because I was had the opportunity to choose the reader, the voice artist. Yeah. So I chose the, the voice artist who reads the the books or the Dan Brown books, the the fictional books like Angels and Demons. So he he's an expert at doing the, these voice readings. Uh, he's the kind of guy who could read the phone book, and you would just listen. Uh, wrapped with attention to the phone book, and I, I was happy that he both was available and, and read the book because part of the part of the notion of of listening to a book is that you have to be drawn into it. I mean, the, the, again, almost in a magical sense, you're being drawn. You're, I'm writing stuff, but I want to draw you into it. So he was he's able to speak it in a way where which is manifesting what I was hoping to do. The book itself is good it's it's a fairly short book it's only 220 pages which for me is about half is what i usually write uh but intentionally so so you you could probably read the whole thing in in four or five days or something like that Uh, so and that, that would also tell you in much more detail everything we've been talking about and a lot more. I
0: would attest to that. The 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 reading, the reading that he did is phenomenal. Um, and it really does it it, it just toes the line. I mean, and, and the book does too. It toes the line. It's accessible for people. It's a, it's written in a way that's accessible for people who are skeptical and it's juicy and 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 magical enough for those of us who are already on that page to to merge that to merge the sort of what you've done is to merge that world between um this these are the studies. This is this is my background. This is the experience that I have. This is what we're dealing with. Um uh, I just I really really enjoyed it and then when I heard you uh when I heard you on this couple of other podcasts I was like, "Man, I got to have him. I've got to bring him on because um I think that this is the this is an untapped frontier for for so much, for so much of human performance. Um the, the concept that we can actually manipulate and influence matter and in the future is, is huge. And it's too weird for some, but man, for those of us, and and I, and I tend to think about really high performers, you know, I tend to think about, you know, the, the, the most successful entrepreneurs and business people. And I and I tend to think about, you know, the most, the most successful athletes and, and their mentality is what gets them there. Their belief mm. is what gets them there. It's, it's obvious it, you know, Michael Jordan, six, six, that helps, right? But the fact that he had this burning desire to be the best ever in um, the belief that it was going to happen for him um, also helped. I, I, I really believe that, that this is the next this is the next frontier for for human performance. And you lay it out in the book, and you explain the different levels of magic and give examples just like we talked about about written magic. Mm-hmm. Um, before before we wrap this thing up, um, is there anything that you're working on? I mean now now that the book now the book is is out and, and being ex, uh, being received as well as it has with people um, digging into it. Um, what's next for you at the Institute of Noetic Sciences? What's, what's the next thing that you're, uh, that you're sinking your teeth into?
1: Uh, I'll go into that in a minute. I just want to say that for the skeptics, who it, and this is completely understandable because for at least 10 years, I was extremely skeptical about all this stuff, but I got over it. <laughs> nice. for, the, for, for the skeptics, I would say uh, it, it, it at least becomes a carrot To think about these things when you realize that the book has been endorsed by two nobel laureates by a former program director at the national science foundation by a president of the american statistical association by two major prize winners from the national institutes of health and national academy of sciences and a dozen very prominent uh, professors from major universities and they could have gotten many many more so the this really is a book about science it, it's about the magic of science and the science of magic, essentially. And I, I put the word magic in there because I knew that it would attract people's attention. But it's also—it really is about magic, about the real thing. So that's that's for the skeptics. Uh, as far as what we're doing, I'm I'm one of a team of seven scientists at the Institute of Nordic Sciences. I'm the chief scientist, but we also we have uh, senior people in the, in the neurosciences and optical physics in computer science, in clinical psychology, uh, naturopathic medicine, a few other areas. So as a multidisciplinary group, we are working on projects collaboratively, but we also have a neurobiologist on our team. Uh, we're, we're developing and working on projects that we all work on together and also individually. So me individually, I'm working on a, a, a project that involves entangled photons as hmm. the target of a mind-matter interaction. So you were doing this on Skype with video, so I can point out behind me there's th- that thing over there is an electronics box, Yeah. and that thing over there is an optical system, and that's where the entangled photons are actually created. They're huh. created in there, and then the, the coincidence detectors in the optic in the electrical box. Huh. What that, the reason why entangled photons becomes an interesting target is because There's one thing strange about psychic phenomena. They are experiences that transcend space and time. That's the only reason they're considered strange. There's one thing strange in physics too, namely that if you have entangled systems, they transcend space and time. That's why entanglement is so strange. So this experiment is looking to see whether it's simply a coincidence, that in one case we have a physical system that transcends space and time, in the other one we have experience, transcending space and time is that a coincidence or not so the experiment is looking at this issue to see whether or not uh psychic phenomena and entanglement are related to each other in in one way or another
0: interesting oh can't wait for that well we're gonna have lots of show notes um uh so that people can people can find you uh, and buy the book listen to the book um but please give us give us your vitals where can people find you uh, are you are you reachable on twitter can people email you like what's what's how, how can people find you dean
1: uh go to org, or deanradin.com or realmagicbook.com or i'm on facebook and linkedin and twitter
0: perfect well, uh, Dr. D- Dean Radin, thank you so much for having uh, for having this conversation with me today. It's been fascinating, and I know that uh, our listeners are going to dig it.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.